The scripture reading this morning is selected verses from Luke 1, 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, and all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his child David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Don. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to fall afresh upon us this morning as we turn to your word. Illumine your truth in our hearing and give us the gift of faith Dispel our fears and give us courage. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I saw a poster the other day that I had seen a number of times before, um, but I've never looked up what it was all about until this past week, and I saw it again in a bookstore window, and the, the curiosity got the best of me, so I looked it up. There was a guy by the name of Stuart Manley about a decade ago, and he is a used bookstore owner, in Northumberland, England, and one day he was rummaging around a box of old 
used books, and um, in a bright colored corner of a piece of paper at the bottom of the stack caught his attention. Um, it was a poster, bright red, with the crown of King George VI on the top, and bold, bright letters that read, keep calm and carry on. You've seen this poster before, right? Um, some of you even know um, the story behind it. Manley liked the poster. He framed it, uh, he hung it in the window of his bookshop, and looking into the poster's origins, he discovered that it was created in 1939 by the British in, uh, Ministry of Information. 1939, by the British Ministry of Information. This was just prior to the Nazi Blitz when German planes were flying over England and bombing uh, Liverpool and London and Coventry, industrial centers and civilian populations. The the world had never seen anything quite like it. The air raid sirens every night, citizens hiding in basements and in subway stations, the unbelievable noise and explosions, fires and destruction, the nightly death toll. British people were understandably terrified by this. To make matters much, much worse, everyone in the world, including the British government, expected Germany to finally invade Great Britain. It may have been the most terrifying time in the nation's history, those, those days leading up to what would be the Blitz. And that's when the Ministry of Information created these posters and made 2.5 million of them to be distributed and posted uh, when the German invasion began. But the invasion never actually came to pass. The posters were never distributed. After the war, they were destroyed, all but two of them, one of which was found at the bottom of Stuart's box of used books. People began to ask about the eye-catching poster in his shop window that he had taped up to the glass. And so he had it reproduced, and tens of thousands of copies were sold, and then it became picked up by marketers um, in America and other places around the world, and be, they began using it as a theme for a range of products, and even spin-offs um, like Starbucks, like uh, Keep Calm and Drink Starbucks, things like this. Manley's wife, Mary, she said this. She said, its, it's message is so simple, so clear, and so without spin. Keep calm and carry on. It's turned out to have meaning not just for a single people in a time of trouble, but for all of us, wherever we live, whatever our troubles. I don't have a copy of the poster, but if I did, I'd probably put it up in my office because... Uh, I think its message is appropriate not only for the second Sunday of Advent, Advent, but for most of the days of our lives. Of course, I don't mean to trivialize the terror and evil of the Nazi blitz, 
But it does occur to me that there's enough blitzing going around in our society and in our lives and around our world most days to create enough anxiety where we could benefit from two and a half million copies of a poster that spreads around our nation that says, keep calm and carry on. And maybe instead of King George, George's crown, a crown of thorns, keep calm and carry on. I think about the media and, um, and our news outlets and why is it that the modus operandi of most um, private media journalists, the modus operandi is not to calm our fears, but to increase them, to exploit them, to enhance them. It's the exploitation of fear. There's the anxiety of an overwhelming crisis along our border and how many mothers and children are dying on our land. The anxiety of climate change and the COP28 climate summit that's taking place in Dubai. The anxiety of what is likely to be another depressing election cycle that we're beginning to emerge into. The anxiety of rising interest rates and home prices that are not necessarily coming down and all of those Californians that just keep moving to Utah. <laughs> and then we have religious anxiety, religious anxiety. The church is too liberal, the church is too conservative. And then all of our personal anxieties, social media, surgery, relationship problems, and that was just November. <laughs> now we're into December, and so you take all of those things and you add to it, you've got to decorate your house, you've got to go get a tree, you've got to arrange for parties, and you have to spend a bunch of money that you don't have trying to make your loved ones happy, which you don't have the power to do. <laughs> Sounds great. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the church is asking you to slow down, to come in here and to sit for a little while, to, to ponder nothing earthly-minded, to wait and watch for something to happen that is quiet and seemingly ordinary, very ordinary, just the birth of a child. And the whole thing is introduced, not with trumpets and bright lights, those will come later, but with quiet Advent hymns, songs, and canticles about waiting and watching. Last week we began this series of messages where we're looking at the songs in the Bible, the Advent songs that lead us toward the birth of Jesus and even beyond. And so this will continue into Christmas Eve and then even the Sunday after Christmas. And last week we looked at the famous song of Isaiah who 750 years prior to the birth of Jesus uh, sang a song about a people living in darkness and a child being born to shine the light on them. Fast forward about 350 years and the Jewish people are still waiting for Messiah to come. Now it's the, during the time of the rededication of the temple and the minor prophet Malachi promises the restoration of the people through one who would come like Elijah. And then there's silence for 400 years. For 400 years, God doesn't speak to the people 
in the same way until the prologue to the birth of Jesus. When the angel Gabriel comes to visit Elizabeth and Zechariah, who are living in the hill country of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. I like Zechariah. I like, I like him a lot. You know, Mary and Elizabeth, um, you know, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, and, and Mary, they seem to get all the attention. But I like Zechariah. I feel like I can relate to him. For one thing, of course, he's a guy, you know, and uh, so I, there's that. Um, the, Luke says that the, that he and Elizabeth were getting on in years, which is a diplomatic way of saying they're kind of old. Elizabeth comes from a good family. Zachariah is a priest. Zachariah probably maintains uh, a shrine or a little altar in his village outside in the hill country outside of Jerusalem. And once a year, he joins with the other priests and they goes into Jerusalem to serve in the temple, to participate in the great festival in a leadership capacity. It's an incredible honor. And on this particular occasion, Zechariah is chosen as the only one among the priests to be the great high priest to go into the Holy of Holies, to light incense, and then to come out with a word of blessing for the congregation and hope and forgiveness. It's the honor of a lifetime. But while he's in the Holy of Holies, something something strange happens. He gets a vision or a mystical experience. An angel, actually, according to Luke, an angel appears and has a command and an announcement for Zechariah. Zechariah, like any of us, was terrified at the sight of an angel. Do not be afraid, the angel commands. Elizabeth will conceive and bear a son and name him John. Well, how in the world is that supposed to happen, Zechariah says. We're way beyond that in our years. And the reader is immediately thinking about Abraham and Sarah when they laughed at such a promise. And the angel who identifies himself by name as Gabriel says, well, I've been sent by God to send you this incredible news. But because you have an imagination deficit, or at least you're unable to trust, uh, and you've got some lack of confidence, I'm going to take away your voice and you're not going to be able to speak until the baby is born. Now, if you're a religious professional, a preacher, and you can't talk, you've got a problem on your hands. And this is why I like Zachariah. This is why I can identify with him. I'm told that every profession has its bad dream or its nightmare and that practitioners of that profession uh, regularly report having that bad dream or some variation of it. I don't know what is the bad dream for an accountant or a doctor, but I know what it is for a minister, and it has to do with preaching. You step into the pulpit and the iPad crashes or the notes are gone. Um, The service is starting and you're running late. Or uh, you wake up, the alarm doesn't go off, and it's noon on Sunday. (laughs) I have had this dream before. Or the worst one, you step into the pulpit 
and you've done everything right to prepare except you forgot one thing, to put on your pants. <laughs> or as in Zechariah, you've been muted. So Zechariah is literally the preacher's worst nightmare. He comes out to give a word and he can't talk. What an amazing thing. The most important congregation he will ever address is waiting outside of the Holy of Holies for him to emerge and to speak and to bless, and he can't say a thing. He has no voice. It strikes terror in the hearts of everyone. And then there's the matter of God being the one who prevented his speech from happening. It's not laryngitis that he got. No, it was God who shut him up, who made him quiet. One commentator said that Zechariah's muteness was actually a gift of grace um, so that he couldn't embarrass himself by talking and making matters worse. She went on to say that the point here is that for nine months, a man had to listen to his wife <laughs> and he couldn't say a thing. No more mansplaining. And so for nine months, he's unable to speak this religious professional who, with his wife, waited for years for a child, had long since given up hope, now can't do anything but think, but ponder, but listen, but meditate, but contemplate on this announcement. Elizabeth's going to have a baby. When the child is born, they name him John, and as the angel instructed him to do, he will prepare the way, this John, for another unexpected birth, the surprising pregnancy of Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, and her child, Jesus. When John is born and they finally name him John, Zachariah is given his voice back. It's meant to be read as like a miracle. And the first words that come out of his mouth are a kind of joyful poem when this child is born. The birth of a child turns fathers into poets. Whatever, whatever he said, Luke arranges it into like a canticle, which the church has loved for 20 centuries. It's known as the Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably upon his people. You know, that's what every parent thinks, I think, even if they don't say it like that when the child is born about their newborn. Blessed be the God of Israel, blessed be the God of all creation. Uh, it's what I think every time I hold an infant uh, in my arms for baptism. Blessed be the Lord. Every child is a blessing from God. Every child is a sign of God's goodness. Every child is a sign of God's promise. As new fathers are inclined to do, Zachariah starts to brag a little bit, and the canticle then turns uh, towards um, the son. And he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Little pressure on the kid. And then the most beautiful images I know in the gospel, by the tender, by the tender mercy of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness. You can hear Isaiah echoing and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Suddenly, old Zechariah, who's been thinking about this for nine months, 
He moves from, from, from boasting, from sort of cooing over the baby to then plunging us into the depths of human experience and all of the human issues. Those walking in darkness, in the shadow of death, these stunning images, deliverance from the fear of death, a fear of darkness. You know, the angel's first words to Zechariah and to young Mary are, do not be afraid. And those words continue to echo throughout the whole Bible. Walter Brueggemann says it's the fundamental biblical word, fear not. It comes to Moses in the wilderness. Um, it comes to the Hebrews when they are in captivity about to venture into the wilderness into an unknown future. Do not be afraid. It comes to a skeptical old man and a frightened pregnant teenager comes to startled shepherds out in the fields watching their sheep, and it comes to grieving women at an open tomb. Do not be afraid. To everyone who sits in darkness, to everyone who ponders her mortality, to everyone who experiences the anxiety of any kind of blitz, fear of death, fear of meaninglessness, fear of nothingness. As I mentioned last week from Psalm 23, the promise is that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's actually what it means to sit in the shadow of death. It means to ponder your mortality, the reality that each and every one of our lives is going to end. And that strikes fear. Um, every fear is ultimately rooted in the fear of death. So says Ernest Becker in his work, The Denial of Death. It's the great darkness, the great shadow over human life. Paul called death the final enemy, our final enemy. Fear, fear paralyzes, you know. Fear of falling prevents us from climbing high. Fear of failure prevents you from venturing out. Fear of rejection prevents you from loving unconditionally. Fear of intimacy prevents you from being vulnerable. And fear of death prevents you from living, from living. And fear running rampant in society, according to psychologists Murray Bowen and Edwin Friedman, Fear running rampant in society is responsible for terrorism, fundamentalism, and unjust policies. And so that's why we sing, from our sins and fears release us. Let us find our rest in thee. It's the release that's important. It's not that we wouldn't have fears. To believe in God, to trust in Jesus Christ doesn't mean we don't have fear. It's to not be paralyzed by our fears. It's to release our fears. It's to not be tyrannized by our fears, to not be captive to them. Uh, fear of failure, fear of rejection, um, fear of the final enemy, death itself. And this requires a spiritual practice of release. It might come first thing in prayer in the morning Lord, what are my fears today, big or small? 
big or small, rational or irrational. Lord, what are my fears today? Can I release them to you so that they might not be totally gone, but so that I might not be captive by them? It's to live in the freedom of knowing that in the birth of Jesus, all of our issues have ultimately been resolved. God's love has come and will come into our world and into our lives. It'll surround us and keep us every single day, right up to the last day and even beyond that. God's love shines in every darkness, in every shadow. I wanna close with this story uh, from Anne Lamott. Uh, it's from her first uh, bestseller um, called Operating Instructions. And she was a young mother at the time and she tells a story of when she took her, her two-year-old son to Lake Tahoe for a little getaway. And because of where they were staying in a little condo by the lake and there's all these gambling establishments, they have um, blackout uh, curtains or blinds in the rooms so that the gamblers could gamble all night and then sleep all day providing conveniently a psychological weakness that benefits the casinos. That's another story. But one day, uh, one night, she, Anne was there and she put her son to bed, um, turned out the light in the darkened room with the darkened blinds and closed the door and went to the other room to do, do some work on her writing. And um, after a couple of minutes, um, she heard the son knocking on the door from the inside. So she went over there to try to put him back to bed uh, in his pack and play. And when she got to the door, it was kind of the parent's worst nightmare. It, she realized it was locked from the inside. And the son started crying out, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. And she was saying, just jiggle the doorknob, honey. Just, you know, uh, push the button, whatever you can. And of course, he couldn't even see the doorknob. Um, somehow he accidentally locked it, but he couldn't reach it or see it. When it became clear to him that his mother wasn't going to be able to enter into the room, panic set in. And he started wailing and she could hear him sobbing and sobbing. She tried everything, trying the door, calling the rental agency, the manager, leaving all kinds of messages on various answering machines, running back and forth to comfort her son in the dark, terrified, locked room. Finally, she did the only thing she could think of. She laid down at the base of the door and she put her fingers through underneath the door and she told her son to get on the floor and to find her fingers and he did that and when he found her fingers and they locked he calmed down and they stayed like that for what seemed like a long time until help finally came him holding her fingers in the dark feeling her presence her care her love Sometimes you and I are like this two-year-old in a blackened, darkened, terrifying room. And God is always like that mother, present to us in the darkness. Sometimes we don't even hear him speak, but we can feel his presence. At least we can trust that he's there with us. So that means that we can keep calm and carry on by the tender mercy of our God the dawn from on high will break upon us 
to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.